shining a light on the issue of domestic violence. The United Nations study out this week finds domestic violence is one of the most common killers of women around the world. Fears are growing at domestic violence shelters. Domestic violence experts in our top story. Well, the domestic violence situation quickly turned into an assault. The federal government calls it a pervasive problem that frequently goes undetected. We're talking about the courage that it takes to come forward as a victim. Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of Community Voices. Uh, my name is Ryan Stillwater, development director here with Saving Grace. And today is super exciting, this episode, because we are joined by uh, a man from Deschutes County Probation. And he is cl- just a cool guy. And I really enjoyed our conversation. I think you will too. But first, I wanted to thank one of our new sponsors, New Fathom IT. What if you didn't have to worry about IT support for your small business or even at home? What if you had someone you could count on just to take care of it so you could focus on what matters most, your business or your family? Our friends at New Fathom and their IT support team is standing by, ready to support you. And they're right here in Bend, Oregon, serving Central Oregon. Just go to newfathom.com or call them at 541-728-3315. Do that today, learn more, and please thank them for being someone's saving grace. All right, so let's jump right in. Here's Justin Bendel. Justin, thanks for uh, jumping on Zoom this morning. Yeah, no problem, thanks for having me. So why don't you, um, why don't you go kind of right into who you are, your background, um, whatever you feel uh, like sharing so we can get to know you a little better. Oh boy. Um, well, I guess uh, I could start off with, I, I grew up in Central Oregon, uh, lived in Redmond as a kid. Uh, so I, I kind of from the area and then we relocated to the Valley and spent, um, you know, the, my senior year through the next 20 years living in Eugene area. So I started my career working in Eugene, working for Lane County. I got hired as a as a deputy sheriff working in the corrections division. So I spent uh, about six years working with clients while they were incarcerated in the correction system. I spent several of those years at the county jail and then moved over to what was the, a work release center where I got to see a little bit different side of the correction system through that. Um, you know, while I was working there, I, I, I liked the job, but just didn't feel that it... Uh, was really what I was looking for in a, in a long-term career. I really wanted to be able to impact people at a, at a little bit deeper level. Uh, you know, as a corrections officer, you, you get to see a cycle of, of people that get out, come back. They just keep reoccurring, you know, through an open door. Yeah. And you don't really get to see what happens after people leave. So, you know, I was really interested in trying to figure out if there was something I could be involved in that would maybe try and help people not come back to jail. So I started learning a little bit more about parole and probation and, and kind of found out some of the ins and outs and the details of what parole and probation officers do. And I uh, tried to get hired in that field and, and was lucky enough to get hired by Lane County. And uh, actually, I guess that was, uh, like I said, about six years after working in corrections and made that step. And I worked in Lane County as a parole and probation officer for about seven years before my family decided to move back to Central Oregon, where I grew up and where I consider home. Uh, we wanted to be able to raise our family over here and have it be a you know, just kind of that familiar home feeling for me. And 
it's a beautiful place to live. And obviously coming from the Valley where, you know, you get maybe 150 days of sunshine a year to get 300 was, was a good step. So when we decided to do that, I was lucky enough to find a position open at Deschutes County for a parole and probation officer. And I came over here about six years ago and worked as a parole and probation officer here for about three years before promoting to a supervisor for our department. So I'm one of one of three of our, we have three supervisors and then um, a, a deputy director and a director. Great. So uh, how old are your kids now? Almost all, all adult and grown now. My oldest is 21, my middle is 18, and my youngest is 16. Wow. Um, once we stop recording, I need I need fatherly parenting advice <laughs> with my oldest approaching oh. her, her teen years very rapidly. Oh, boy. Get ready. <laughs> um, well, excellent. I mean, that, that's quite the background. And, and I, I mean, having known a number of police officers and probation officers and correctional officers, corrections, not correctional, huh? Um, it, it's not necessarily the most common to hear what you just said about wanting to make a better, a bigger impact, a deeper impact, I think is what you said. And being, you know, alarmed or not, you know, not enjoying seeing that revolving door that you mentioned. Yeah. Can you, can you kind of maybe, you know, shine some light on you? Just who, you, who are you personally that you think really, why, why did that affect you so much seeing that revolving door? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it was interesting for me, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, I never thought, I wanted to go into corrections of any kind. You know, I always wanted to be a teacher and had a desire to be a teacher. And of course I wanted to coach and play sports. And if I could have been a professional athlete, that would have been great. But that, you know, when I stopped growing at five, six, I kind of lost that dream, you know, and um, you know, just the way life circumstances worked out, I got offered a job, you know, when I was pretty young uh, working in a loss prevention field. And it was just kind of a, job to kind of get you know the bills paid and it kind of really fell in love with the excitement of the law enforcement aspect of it and you know w- watching somebody steal something from a grocery store and then you know the adrenaline of kind of getting involved in that was pretty interesting so I started looking a little bit more into the law enforcement field and it was um, not something that I was sure I wanted to get involved in but I never uh, expected to work at a jail so when I, I thought, you know, maybe being a police officer would be kind of fun because you can be out and you can protect the community and do those things. And when I applied for the sheriff's office, I didn't realize at the time until I got hired that everybody starts in the jail. And no, no matter how many uh, years you've been in any type of uh, system, you're starting at the at the jail when you work for Lane County. And, you know, it was quickly thereafter that uh, I realized that, you know, I, I didn't want to be a police officer. I was I was seeing how frustrated that a lot of the officers were that worked there, you know, they're working double shifts, marriages were struggling. Um, you know, just, it, it was kind of all consuming. And I, and I just realized that that probably wasn't the profession for me because I wanted to stay married and was, you know, pretty interested in, you know, being a little bit more than just you know, somebody that's out writing tickets and those types of things. And at the same time, I was also realizing that the kind of the mindset working in corrections was, that everybody that you were working with was, you know, bad. And, you know, that was kind of a struggle for me. I, I, um, I didn't see people as bad prior to working there. And, you know, I always kind of viewed people who were in the system as making mistakes and, and, and to where 
for me, that always seemed like common sense. It, it almost seemed like a rare, I think kind of like you were mentioning, is it sometimes that's kind of a rare opinion. I think people are easily jaded when you work in that field for a long time because it's all you see. Sure. And, um, you know, as I spent time there, I, I, I didn't want to have my view change into that. Um, I, I truly believe, and I still believe to this date, that, you know, everybody is capable of change. Um, you know, some are more willing and <laughs> some aren't. But I, I, I believe that there are, there are people that are good that make bad decisions. And good and bad is such a, you know, silly term to use. But genuinely, just because somebody makes a mistake and gets on supervision for something doesn't mean that they're not capable of moving on with their life and, and having a productive life and having a great family and being a good person. So that's where I kind of started wanting to kind of expand my ability to see if I couldn't help make a difference and make it so people didn't come back. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and that, I mean, that is interesting to me how the initial adrenaline rush of, like you said, catching someone shoplifting, you know, and then moving on to a discontent that you didn't want to just keep catching people shoplifting. Right. Uh, you know, use that as a metaphor. So, Moving on to a more, you know, serious note and side of, of your career. Um, it says here that, this is what you sent, sent me before this, um, you supervised all types of caseloads, including clients on supervision for domestic violence. Um, as a supervisor, one of my roles is to supervise our domestic violence unit. Uh, what is the domestic violence unit? Um, you know, with your perspective of people aren't bad, they make bad decisions, you know, has that been consistent as you're working with an an offending, um, you know, partner in a relationship who's now under your supervision? Why don't you describe that for us? Yeah. Well, so to explain kind of our domestic violence unit, we we have uh, offices in Lapine, Bend, and Redmond. So in each of those offices, we have POs that work specifically with domestic violence offenders. So in Redmond, we have one full caseload, one PO that does her caseload is fully just domestic violence offenders. And then we have another PO in Redmond that has a half caseload of domestic violence offenders and then a half caseload of just like general street crimes, you know, thefts and other types of things that aren't specific to uh, sex offenders or uh, mental health clients, those types of things. So we have uh, about uh, one and a half POs in the Redmond office. In Bend, we have two full-time POs that have uh, their caseloads are fully full-time domestic violence offenders. We have a third Bend caseload that is all pre-trial domestic violence offenders. So that PO supervises people that are not yet convicted, but they're participating in a pre-trial program. And then in Lapine, we have a bless you. <laughs> in Lapine, we have a, a we have. Uh, uh, kind of a similar to Redmond, the the caseload out there is about half time. So the PO out there has half of a caseload of domestic violence and then half of a caseload of regular generic street crime type cases. Got it. So that's our um, that's kind of what our domestic violence unit is. Um, of course, that group of POs receive specialized training in supervising domestic violence cases. Um, the Department of Public Safety in Salem actually does a um, domestic violence specific uh, training week for for people that supervise those cases. So they get a little bit of extra training in addition to what would be like the generic uh, parole and probation academy. So we try and support them with specialized training for those cases. What was the second half of the question? Uh, I don't remember. 
this is the keep rolling though. This is good. <laughs> it's a good overview. So yeah, I, I, that's kind of what our unit. Um, so uh, we have specific meetings together to talk about specific issues that are happening. Any, any changes to like case law staff cases that are, um, you know, like maybe high risk or specific issues that are going on that we need to talk about. Uh, that unit will also um, invite outside treatment providers into the, to our meetings to uh, talk about like specific things that could be happening in the world of domestic violence treatment or batters intervention treatment. Um, you know, so we try and work pretty closely with the treatment provider to make sure that we're, you know, working together as a team while working with those uh, clients. Got it. And what does the specialized training look like? What, how does that differ from just the normal academy? So like I said, it's a, it's about a week long class and it's, it's not a class, it's several classes, but what they do is they invite different instructors and in, in different kinds of uh, like, there may be a four hour class where it's a victim's impact panel or they'll, they'll bring victims of crimes to come in and share their stories and to share how their relationship with prior parole and probation officers may have been impactful and just little pieces that officers can take on how maybe to better work with victims of crime. Um, you know, they do specific things for uh, like the batter's intervention program. will give a presentation on like how batter's intervention treatment works and how POs can work with that. Uh, they do specific like role-playing scenarios on how to work specifically with clients that, you know, may have committed domestic violence and those types of things because they, there can be differences. There's a little bit sometimes of power play that comes in, into into the situation sometimes. So learning how to deal with those situations can be helpful and just playing them out. And there's just a number of different classes. They've, they do, um, you know, they had recently, they had a like search and seizure class so that you, you can learn tools and like tricks on how to search cell phones to look for maybe hidden, um, you know, victim contacts and things like that. So just a variety of different things. It changes every year just based on kind of what, you know, may need to be updated and whatnot, legal, yeah. legal standards and things like that. Gotcha. Um, John, down some more questions here. My mind is racing. So what, 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 what does a day in the life look like for, um, for your POs? Specifically well, with domestic violence in the yeah, um, you know, to be honest, it's it's every day can be different. Um, you know, the one thing about this job is that a lot of times we try really hard to be proactive, but end up being reactive. Um, you you can show up at work with a plan to do six scheduled things, and then within the first hour, you may get a phone call that changes the rest of the day. So it really varies, but for the most part. The day in the life of a PO would be, you know, depending on what's scheduled that day. But our POs do a number of things like office visits where the clients will come to the office. They will have a meeting. Uh, the PO may go over, you know, like a cognitive, cognitive skill building worksheet with them to talk about certain areas that they're struggling with. They may just be talking about, you know, like concerns from the community. If they've gotten information, they may be investigating something that information that was provided. They may be talking to them about their treatment program, what what they're working on in there and trying to build on that skill and, and to work with that. Uh, the POs also go out in the field and they do home checks. So they'll go to the residence and try and contact the client there and um, do a walkthrough and 
look for anything that might be concerning or a violation or something that's out of place for, for that, the conditions of that person's supervision. Um, but like I said, for example, you know, we may come into work one day and get a call from local police saying, Hey, we've got your guy detained and he's got, uh, you know, somebody hidden in the back room and he, he won't, you know, cooperate with us. And we may go out to that house and help, you know, the police try and figure out if it's his victim in the house or whatnot, or if he's got something there that he's not supposed to. So. And if they, if the individual breaks a restraining order, the terms of a restraining order, does that, the, the victim would go, would call police, please call you. There's a internal system of notification. So, yeah, so that kind of gets into a, there's, there's kind of a two prong thing there. So a violation of a restraining order is a crime, right? If, if a, if a client violates a restraining order, the victim calls the police, the police are going to respond and they're going to make an arrest. The officer may call us and just say, Hey, we've got this guy in custody. Um, Obviously, if he committed a new crime, he's probably in violation of his supervision. Would you like to address that? Which at that point, we may say, yes, we'll send a detainer to the jail, which means that we're also going to address his supervision violation. Got it. Um, a lot of times there's not restraining orders in place, but there's court orders like or a supervision order. So let's say somebody who is released from prison may have a condition of their post-prison supervision that says you may not contact this person. Well, that's not a restraining order. It's a no contact order from the parole board. So the difference being is if the victim calls and says, uh, officer calls dispatch and the officers respond and it's a no contact order, it's not a new crime, but it is a violation of their supervision. So an officer may respond to a situation where somebody's violating no contact, but that officer needs the parole and probation officer to, to deign that person on the, the violation of the court order or the post-prison order. It's, it's very confusing and complicated, but the no contact is different than the, yeah, right, right. You know, an actual court imposed or, you know, got it. Order, so. Okay. That makes sense. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, one thing that, that I heard you say when you're talking about the DV unit is the, the full-time person in Redmond is a woman. You said yeah. she, yes, are, are, I mean, I know the statistics, but I'm curious about locally, are the majority of your clients men, women, mix? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't put a percentage on it, but I would say we're, we're probably well above 90% of our clients on for domestic violence are men. It's, it's typically a crime that is, is more associated with male population than the female population. And that makes me so curious to talk to this individual in, in Redmond, you know, your PO there. Um, just from what I know of offenders and, you know, um, at, at least what's behind typically their, um, view attitude towards women. And I'm real curious to see what her uh, office visits and home visits are, are like with, with her clients. Yeah. Well, honestly, the majority of, so out of the five POs that we currently have supervising domestic violence cases, uh, we, three out of the five are female. And that's, that's kind of typical for us. And, and, and this is, you know, not to get stereotypical, but I think it works really well for us because, you know, in a lot of times that the clients that are, you know, very pushy or dominating, um, they can push buttons per, pretty well. And, you know, as somebody who supervised domestic violence cases, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I found myself getting agitated and, and frustrated. And, and I feel like the, you know, like the Redmond officer that we have, she's just a calm, cool it's really hard to push buttons for her. She's going to maintain her, her coolness all the time, which is a skill. And I think, you know, she's, you know, I, I find that our, 
our uh, officers that work, actually all of them, even, even the males are the same way. They're just very good at keeping their cool and understanding that this is a process. And, you know, it's not, it's not something that you, you should take personally. It can be very hard sometimes when somebody's yelling at you and calling you names, not to make that personal, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, this is a job and you have to just maybe make sure that you can compartmentalize that and not have that, you know, affect how you're supervising someone. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm sure this came up in, in some part of your specialized training, but the, the power and control yeah. wheel, you know, oh, yeah. and for uh, a male client to be sitting across from their, their PO, who's a woman, yeah. they, they don't get to, I'm just, I'm, I'm um, speculating here. I'm guessing they don't get to kind of exert any of their normal power and control tendencies because yeah. they're, their PO is the one with the power and control over ensuring they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And yeah, I mean, you know, just, I think just like in any population of people, you have people that are better able to control their emotions and, and, and um, we see a wide variety. I mean, we certainly see people that come in and they act like they are, you know, the model citizen and, you, you, you know, they are courteous and they will always be that way. And, you know, sometimes when they leave, we don't get that same response when they're not here. Right. But they're able to put on a good face here. We have several people that show up here that aren't able to put on a good face. And those conversations certainly are more difficult and don't always go, you know, the, that same way. But, um, you know, I think just, it, it's just varies, you know, there's, there's just a, just sometimes people have bad days too. Some, some, Sometimes people that you work with on numerous occasions come in and they're great every time. And then, you know, they've had a life event or something that's going on. And then, you know, they kind of slip into, you know, that power and control and try and take over. And yeah, like you, like you kind of alluded to, we, we certainly discourage that. Um, We don't, uh, we don't want our officers to be abused in any way or intimidated. Um, So we'll, we'll, we'll pretty much end those conversations pretty quickly and just try and reschedule for the next day or whatever. Gotcha. Bring back on track. And kind of on that note, you mentioned during the office visits, there, there's, did you say worksheets to go through things that your client's struggling with? What are, what are the things they typically struggle with if there is a typical? Well, you know, it's different for every person, but you know, like what we try and do is, is really uh, facilitate pro-social thinking. So if somebody is, um, you know, f- for example, like we have things called behavior chains where if somebody you know, got into an argument and, you know, punched a door, we may take that specific behavior and talk about, okay, so this was the behavior. Now let's work through this process. And, and the PA will take them through a step-by-step process of like, you know, where did this end up? Or where do you, where did you get, you know, where's, or like a pros con sheet. So like, like, what is the pro of these benefits? And we'll write down all the good things that happen and how does that benefit you in the future? And then, you know, we'll go through that and kind of just, sorry, my lights are motion activated and I'm not moving enough. So <laughs> they're confused. So um, we have, it's just, it really kind of depends on what the specific issue was. Um, we have people that struggle with their time management. They can't get to appointments on time. So we'll work with them on keeping, you know, an accurate accountability of their time. So there's little tools that we can go over with that kind of just address specific things that somebody's struggling with. Is there... I mean, I have so many questions. I'm trying to honor <laughs> honor your time and and stay on point. But it, um, so I guess two part. 
how many clients, you know, give or take, are parents? Um, and how, for how many who are parents, is that a, a real motivator to do well, you know, with their PO and through, kind of going through the, the program? Yeah, um, that's a tough question. You know, I don't know if we've, if we've ever taken like a, you know, like a, a study on like how many are actually parents. I, I would believe there's a high percentage. Um, I, I couldn't put a number on it, but I would guess it's probably more than not. Um, and, it, you know, it really depends on the situation, whether or not the, the parental structure motivates them or doesn't motivate them. I think, you know, what we've learned is that sometimes the, in severe domestic violence cases, the children are sometimes, you know, used by that offending parent as leverage or they, you know, so it, it, it can be kind of, can be kind of one of those things where it may appear that the kids are a motiv- motivating factor, but it may be, be maybe being used as motiv- motivating, sorry, a motivating factor to kind of like, you know, try and get, you know, back at the mom, because if he takes the kids part of the time, he knows that, you know, the mom has to worry about what's going on with that. And she'll be more likely to, you know, want to reunite with him. And so we kind of look at it differently. I I think that, um, you know, we certainly, we certainly like to use children as a motivating factor because I mean, as if you're a parent, you, you know, that, you, you know, that the parental feeling of, you know, having your kids around is a good thing. We, we obviously know that in the world of children growing up with parents is a good thing. We know that when kids are not in their parental home, it, it can kind of, uh, you know, be impactful and, um, you know, but we have to balance whether or not it's the appropriate thing to do to be reuniting, you know, parents with their kids when it's, when there's been a separation due to court circumstances or whatnot. So we, we always are trying to evaluate that what's best is the overall. So there's kind of a team approach that goes into that, you know, us working with the treatment provider to really kind of look at how they're doing in their classes. If they're really participating, a lot of times our clients are required to take parenting classes. So we'll check with uh, the, you know, the, the parenting class and make sure that they're participating and doing those types of things. So I, I do think, I guess the short answer to that question, the long answer at this point is kind of, it depends. Everybody's different. You definitely, we have, we have some clients that come in and I truly believe that their one offense will be their only offense and they engage completely and they wow. are you know, ashamed and appalled about their behavior. And the fact that they had to be removed from their family and their kids was so devastating that they will learn their lesson and hopefully never go back to that behavior. There's others that I just, I don't know that they take the, the treatment class seriously and um, it's more deeper ingrained. Yeah, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Um, and uh, probably the, the kid aspect's a good segue into uh, Mary's Place, which clearly you're familiar with. So Mary's yeah. Place, for those who don't know, is our uh, safe exchange and supervised visitation center. It's based in Bend. Um, it's at the courthouse, more or less. And um, it, it's an opportunity, as we say, for the offending parent to spend meaningful time with their child or children. Can you provide your perspective of Mary's Place and how your clients have utilized that, you know, the, the right way, the wrong way. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, examples of the wrong way. I think Mary's place is a great resource. Um, you know, oftentimes in our, in our world, we're working with an offending parent who has, um, you know, but, but the family dynamic in a dangerous atmosphere, 
Um, but obviously, you know, this parent may want to have contact with their kids and they don't want to lose that ability. Um, sometimes the transfer of kids from one party to another can be difficult, especially if there's a restraining order or a no contact order, those types of things. Uh, or if there's intimidation or fear of those types of things. So Mary's Place provides an atmosphere where our clients can go to a structured place where they have the ability to have a visit that's monitored by staff and the staff are, you know, ensuring that the child's safety is, you know, the main priority. And during this process, the, you know, the victim of the crime or the parent that's, you know, um, concerned about things can know that the child's being, you know, supervised safely and they're safe at the same time. And I, I think Mary's Place does a great job of, you know, making sure that that's a safe environment for everyone and it provides them with a place where otherwise, you know, we, we wouldn't have that ability. There's, you know, without the third party that's trustworthy, it can be difficult to exchange parenting and, and things like that. So I think it's a great resource. Yeah, good. And I did not pay or prep Justin to say that, everyone. <laughs> yep. Big fan of Mary's Place. Good, thank you. And I, you know, when I first started with Saving Grace almost two years ago, I say this a lot, but um, I, I didn't really quite understand uh, the need for it, the benefit it is to our community until I Google searched, you know, like child custody exchange oh, yeah. violence or something. Oh yeah. And the number of news stories that came up from across the country of parents trying to do that in like a perceived safe place, like a retail store parking lot. Yeah. Um, there was one in California last year that was in a police station parking yeah. lot and in a shooting erupted, you know? And yeah. so I, I think if you really want to understand, because now Mary's place is the only one like it in the Pacific Northwest, yeah. as far as I know. So that, that's a big deal for Central Woods. It is. It is. It, it, is a, it is a dangerous situation. And um, I would just add for if anybody that's watching this that doesn't know, the sheriff's office in the parking lot of the sheriff's office in the jail, the sheriff's uh, office installed a, there's two parking spaces that are under video surveillance for those types of uh, exchanges. So it's just another option for somebody that maybe isn't in a position to use Mary's Place or whatnot, but there is an, there is an option to do an exchange of custody there. It's also an exchange, I mean, for anything. If you were buying something off the internet and you were worried about it, you could park in, in those spaces and it's just monitored and uh, recorded so that it's just a safer place to meet. Nice. That's good to know. I think I did know that. I didn't think of it in the context of an exchange. Yeah. But I definitely knew about it for the uh, internet sale yeah, safety. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I only buy like, you know, $10 items off the internet, so I'm not too worried. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So a couple last questions is I, I have found I like reading, um, the answer that our guests, uh, give to the question, why are you passionate about what you do? Can I go ahead and read as you wrote it? Oh, your answer? sure. Uh, I feel like we have an important role in protecting the public while holding clients accountable and trying to help them improve as people at the same time. It is one of the few jobs where you get to be on different side of things. I, I think that's that's really great because you, you you've clearly you know communicated your your heart for people. Um, you don't have a very um, strict black and white perspective on you know someone was um, convicted of a of a crime of a domestic violence related crime, and they have this scarlet letter on them now forevermore. Um, but I think, you know, for, for people to hear that from you uh, makes them feel good because you holding clients accountable, I mean, that's, that's part of the equation, you know, yeah. in, a, 
in a very structured way that you've communicated. So right. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I think it all fits together. You know, I think like, I mean, for one, I mean, that's very similar to, I mean, I think that's kind of our, our um, mission statement is to, you know, protect the public is number one, but by protecting the public, there, there's a lot of things that go into that. I mean, how, how effective are we at protecting the public if we're not changing future behavior? You know, we're, it's great that we arrest somebody every time they do something, but wouldn't it be far, far much better if we could just prevent it from happening again, right? So if we can not only protect the public, hold people accountable, but also try and impact their future behavior, maybe, maybe we're all going to end up, you know, being in a better society and be able to kind of, you know, improve as, as a, as a place where we take care of people instead of, you know, shunning them. And Absolutely. Absolutely. That's good stuff. So lastly, I mean, that was such a beautiful thing to end on, but I don't want to end just yet. Um, <laughs> I, w- I would love to hear about um, whether it was early in your career or more recent, some, a, a DV related situation that that really sticks out in your mind. And I ask because I, I think sometimes the, you know, at large community has a very, very narrow view of what domestic violence is and what it looks like between a couple. Um, and I think sometimes some of the more nitty gritty specifics um, or scenarios helps them really broaden what they imagine that world to be like. And that provides a lot of value. Yeah. Well, the one thing that just pops in my head and, and this is kind of, man, we should have ended on the positive, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think of a situation where a client that I supervised, you know, a few years ago when, when I was supervising cases, you know, this client, um, was already on supervision for domestic violence against his, his spouse. And, um, you know, this, I think when I supervised him, he had already victimized the spouse twice. And, you know, it's this, I'd say probably the hardest part of our job is looking at a situation and trying to find what's best for the family, especially when like the victim or the survivor of this crime wants to be with the offender. And, you know, looking at that situation and knowing it's unsafe, but if you have the client that jumps through these hoops and goes to the treatment class and and does everything they're supposed to, there's an expectation that we will reunite that family. Um, And if we, you know, if if we look at the situation and and there's no reason to keep them apart, we've kind of, we've kind of got to get stuck in this position where we've got to support that. Even if my gut feeling says this has happened twice already, why would we, why would we encourage this? And I think uh, that's, that's difficult for me. And, you know, that was a difficult situation. And, you know, the reason that sticks out for me was because once again, after reuniting, you know, the, the police call at three in the morning is letting me know that this client just, you know, threw the wife down and uh, she hit her head and was bleeding profusely. And, you know, we're, we're starting the cycle all over again. And, you know, that was, uh, that's certainly one of the situations that, and then of course there's the prison cycle and then he gets out and we're, we're doing this all over again. And, yeah. you know, it's just, that's the frustration of, of the job is, you know, not feeling like there are times where, you know, what you do makes a difference. You know, mm-hmm. if we've done this cycle three times, what's going to prevent it from happening a fourth? Yeah. Probably not, you know, and that's, that, that's the, that's the downside to no matter how hard you try, sometimes you, you can't change behavior all the time. You can't, you know, somebody has got to be willing to want to change and, you know, really kind of be full force in making a change if they, if they want to. 
Absolutely. And, and that, I mean, that sentiment really transcends not just, it's not just in DV, but, you know, I came from a, um, an organization in California similar to, to Bethlehem in um, Shepherd's House kind of mixed. And I mean, it was the same thing, you know, to, to see individuals relapse repeatedly or um, get approved for housing and blow it, you know, like yeah. that kind of self-sabotage or what seemed to be an inability to change, you know, it, it is one of the most frustrating things. Yeah. And, and well, to learn yeah. that, you know, to yeah. learn that you can't want something more than they want for themselves is a hard exactly. lesson. You know, I think with, when you think about the relapse on substance abuse, you know, it's, you, you, we know that that's a disease and it's a sickness and, and that it, it is one of the hardest things in the world to get control over. And then, you know, it's, it's hard to look at that the same way when you're looking at violence, you know, it, it's, you know, I, I don't know that I, I look at violence as a sickness. I think that you have control not to, not to mm. be violent. And, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that relapse sh- shouldn't be acceptable in right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to, to end on a, on a positive note is, um, and it's really something I learned from our last episode from Barb, um, our counseling center manager, she was talking about how, you know, there's the little bows of success. So it might not be the full thing for the survivor, but it's, it's, the, it's the little successes that we celebrate with them. Right. And so I think in the case you're describing, what could be part of their safety planning for the survivor is relocating. So if there is this individual that refuses to change part of the safety plan that, that, that we help them do, if, if that's something that they're wanting right. is to relocate, which is more serious, of course, Yeah, but, hard. but sometimes, you know, it's yeah. what's needed to for the greater yeah, definitely. good. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And to end on another high note, um, What's the most important thing you want our listeners to take away? You said, I would just hope that people would know that our goal is to do what's best for the overall good of the family, the people affected by domestic violence. I think that's a good high note. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to end with? No, I think that sums it up. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, our, we have a profession that we kind of, um, we're not in the mainstream media, so people don't know a lot about parole and probation. And I think, you know, it's uh, it's probably you know, one of those things that people don't know what our goal is or what we want to do. So yeah, I think that's good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I, I, I really could keep going. I've really enjoyed hearing from you, you. Uh, learning from you. And I know our, our listeners and viewers will as well. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Learn more about us at saving-grace.org. Thanks for joining us.